too often, but I do want to remind you guys watching this show. This is the fifth episode now. And I appreciate all of the support that I've been getting. It's really honestly wild to me, you know, that it usually takes a little bit for your podcast to get off the ground. Um, this one's doing fairly well. I've done a couple of podcasts. I've done you know, Hoop and Holler, uh, Triple Coverage through Square One Media. I've done the Scoreboard through Annenberg Media. Not, not too often does a podcast, you know, get off the ground, uh, at least relatively speaking, this this quickly. So I, I do want to give you guys so, so, so much thank you. Um, so much thank you. That's a great way to put it, Reagan. So much appreciation for all of the support that you've been giving me, the questions every week, the support. I you know you guys hit me up uh, through text, through social media. Um, you tell me, Reagan, hey, great show, man. Keep it up. All that stuff means so, so, so much to me. It really does. It really does. I'm not the best texter, so I'm probably not expressing how, how much it means to me as well as I could through text, but I just want you, all of you guys knowing, all of you uh, uh, regulars to the show, fans of the show, all the support means so, so much. Don't forget to go follow at the RG2 show on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, that's where I'm giving you guys the updates for what's going on with the show, all that good stuff. So with all of that out of the way, the last dance documentary after five weeks, two hours a week, 10 hours in total, we made it through. We made it through the Last Dance documentary, and frankly, I'm a bit sad. I wish there was more to come. Because that thing, why don't I express my excitement like this? Woo! That's your loud. That thing was a great documentary. Great documentary. Great source of entertainment. The fact that they had to expedite the process, get that thing to us sooner than they expected to. Absolute brilliant work by Jason Hehir. I think that's his name. Hehir, Hehir, Jason H. You and your people, man. Absolutely wonderful, wonderful job. Thank you to you. Thank you to this Jordan for allowing uh, a camera crew to document the entire last season. Thank you to the entire Bulls franchise. Just thank you because, you know, y'all are sports fans. You know we needed this. I need it! Bad. In a bad, bad, bad way. We needed something, anything, anything to look forward to. And the Last Dance documentary provide us, provided us that sort of outlet of something to look forward to every single week. Man. What an absolute, and I know a lot of people have had their concerns, not even really concerns, just observations of that. It wasn't the most objective work of journalism, um, but I, you know, I don't think those people are necessarily criticizing the thing in any way. They're just making an observation like, hey, this is really told from more Jordan's point of view than anything else. Um, and I agree. I, I think it is. And, you know, for, for that, you know, it's a great work uh, of Jordan's obser- or Jordan's perspective. Right. It tells that story from his perspective about as well as you can do it, because he's not the most open dude in the world. You know, after his career, he kind of shut it down. He was not open to media like that at all. So to hear this from his perspective and what went down, man, so eye opening. So, so eye opening, because me, 19 years old, I didn't grow up on Jordan. My parents grew up on Jordan. My aunts and uncles grew up on Jordan. You know, people, the majority of people listening to this right now, you're around my age and you know what I'm talking about. We didn't get to experience Michael Jordan. We didn't get to watch him in all of his, you know, glory. We only heard about it. 
So you know, with this documentary, I'm not going to spoil it for you. I, I'm not going to, you know, get into the ins and outs of every individual episode. If you do want to hear about that sort of stuff, go over to Hoop and Holler with Eddie and Julio Martinez. Not Eddie and Julio, Eddie's son and Julio Martinez. We get into that. After every single week, we, we did a, a, a breakdown of each episode. Go watch that. Uh, that's via Square One. A lot of good stuff going on there. But that's not what I'm going to do here today. I just wanted to give you guys what my biggest takeaway was. And I alluded to it earlier. A lot of times, I've I've sat in on a lot of journalism classes, and there's one thing that professors will always, always, always stress to you. Journalism play, or journalism, journalism. Today, Junior! Jesus, this is going to be a rough episode, y'all. Woohoo! It's going to be a rough episode if I can't get my words out. Journalism professors love to stress one word to you always. It's the C word. C-O-N-T-E-X-T. Context. Context. They love, love, love stressing that word to you because putting things in context makes it a lot easier for the person consuming the information. It makes it a lot, that processing uh, curve, it makes it a lot more uh, uh, palpable. Palpable, palatable. It makes it a lot more palatable for the person consuming it when you put things into context. And I think that's what a lot of this generation lacked when it came to Jordan before this documentary. We didn't really have the context. We just knew people told us that he was great. We knew about the six championships. We've seen the highlights, but we weren't sure how everything fit in terms of the context. That's what this documentary achieved. It contextualized, and I'm making a box with my fingers right now for some reason, even though you guys can't see me right now. (laughs) It contextualized Michael Jordan's greatness. And it did it in such a way that at this point, I'm not sure if any of us in our right minds can really deny that Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time. That's something that I thought going in. But now with the context of knowing what Michael Jordan's career really was from the perspective of viewing it at that period in time, there's no denial. There's no denial of Michael Jordan being the greatest of all time. And I'm going to tell you all why. Because what do I mean when I say it contextualized the greatness of Michael Jordan? I mean that after sitting 10 hours, sitting through 10 hours of that Last Dance documentary, I understand. I now have a real and true grasp of why Michael Jordan is viewed in the light that he is, why he's held in such a regard by the people that watched him when they were growing up, that got the opportunity to watch him live as a basketball player. Now I understand why they hold him in such a regard. I understand why they view him as the undisputed greatest of all time. Why when they see a LeBron, when they know of a Bill Russell, when they know Kobe, they still say, nah, it's Jordan. It's Air Jordan 100%. I know why that is now. Obviously, the skill set had a lot to do with it, and the the documentary does a great job of highlighting that. 
some of the, the, the best moments that came through that documentary were the highlight tapes. You had the, the old school hip hop to it. And man, Michael Jordan, just the grace with which he played the game. I've never seen anything like it. He literally just floated around the court like he was operating on, on just a different dra- gravitational pull than everyone else. His, his his the way he could manipulate his body, the control, the finesse, the grace. It was exquisite. It was exquisite what that dude could do with a basketball in his hands. He was it almost felt like he was playing a different game than everyone else. Obviously, the cool factor, right? People loved Michael Jordan, not just for what he was on the court, but what he was off the court. Dude was a cool customer, man. Cool as they come, because not only was he never flustered on the court, but off the court, there was just this sort of intangible quality that made people want, it just made them flock to him. I've never, like uh, LeBron James is the greatest player of his generation, the greatest player since Michael Jordan. People don't flock to LeBron James like they flocked to Michael Jordan. And it's because Jordan, he, he carried himself in a way that it lets you know that Michael Jordan was that dude. It made you aware that Michael Jordan knew that he was that dude. But it was also like he just he wasn't un he wasn't above giving himself to people. He wasn't above reaching out to somebody who had no business really even being in the same room with him and making himself available to that individual because he's just another person. And that that's that's extremely respectable for somebody, you know, Michael Jordan. That's another thing that I pulled away from this documentary. He had to give so, so much of himself to society. And that's not that wasn't his intention going in. He wanted to play basketball. He signed the Nike contract, but he became this icon. And what accompanied that iconicity, I hope iconicity is a word. If it's not, Reagan just made it a word. But what accompanied that iconicity is him having to constantly be that that, that person that people wanted him to be, which was Michael Jordan. Don't get me wrong. Michael Jordan didn't change himself for anyone, but he always had to be that dude who was willing to give himself to people. That's a remarkable thing. But those two things had, you know, the the, the encore ability and the cool factor while they both played major roles in why we view Michael Jordan as the GOAT. The real thing that I extracted from this documentary and the reason why I think people view Michael Jordan in the light that they do is that Michael Jordan never got dethroned. Let me say that again. Michael Jordan never got dethroned. Now, let me explain why that's important. Once he won that first championship in 91, right? And we know that's when people really start examining your legacy, especially when we're talking about a Jordan, when we're talking about a LeBron. That's when we're like, okay, you got that first championship. Now we can start measuring you amongst the greats. The truly greats of this game, you got that first ring. Now you can start entering that conversation. Assuming you're talented enough, which Jordan was. But once he got that first championship, there was no looking back. He rattled off 91. 
He rattled off 92. He rattled off 93. Then he wants to go play baseball for two years. Then he comes back. He has that little weird stint where he raised the number 45. He came in the latter half of the season. He didn't even really play all that much. He was in a basketball shape. People tend to forget about that. Another thing that was contextualized, I never understood why Jordan was wearing 45. Now I know. But after that weird stint where he came back but didn't really, he wasn't really back, what does he go and do? Rattles off 96, 97, 98. Then he retires again. Then obviously you had the 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 stint with the the Wizards, but you know he's thirty eight years old when he's coming back. I don't think anyone's you know really holding you to your thirty eight years old season unless you're doing something absolutely remarkable. But my point here is that there's a moment there was a moment in the doc- documentary where after he won that sixth championship, Jordan says something along the lines of, "Say what you will about me, you cannot win until I quit." Say what you will about me, but you cannot win until I quit. That, my loyal listeners, is the essence of Michael Jordan's greatness. That's the essence of why we view him as the GOAT. When he was at his best, there was not a basketball player, team, coach, whatever on earth that was stopping Michael Jordan from getting that ring. No one beat him when he was at his best. We never saw Michael Jordan get dethroned. Think about that. What other player in NBA history can say that they never were dethroned? Kobe, you know, was beaten by that Celtics team. We have those images in our head of of the, 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 the confetti falling. Kobe defeated walking off that court. LeBron. We've seen LeBron defeated multiple times by Dallas, by San Antonio, by Golden State. Not Kareem. Not Shaq, not Bird, not Magic, not even Bill Russell. The most winning player of all time in any sport can say that he was never at his best dethroned. Even Bill Russell lost. The only player that can ever say Look, when I was my best, when I was at my peak, no one beat me. The only player that can say that is Michael Jordan. And that's why we view him as the greatest of all time. Because that thing's powerful, man. Watching somebody take that that title away from you, that's a that that is a image that sticks with you as a viewer, as a fan. That image doesn't go away. And we never got that image of Jordan getting dethroned. We never got that image from him. We it had you know I know towards the end he had the beef with the fact that they couldn't have gone for seven, which is remarkable in its own right. Imagine winning six championships effectively in a row and saying, "Man, we should have went for seven. Imagine not being satisfied with that. That's another aspect of why Jordan's so great. But a lot of people are like, man, I wish we could have seen those bull teams. I wish we could have seen them play for as long as they could have. And then when they lost, then they fizzle out. Then Krause tries to rebuild. 
but he should have let them stick together. And you know, they pre probably should have. I'm 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 of that camp. I would have liked to have seen those teams stick together and ride it out for as long as they possibly could have. Maybe they get another ring. But on the other side of the coin, I'm not so sure that if Jordan wins, say another championship, say he wins a seventh in 99 and then loses to the Lakers in 2000. I'm not sure we hold him in the same regard that we do now as having gone 6 and 0 in the finals. I'm not sure so that's not the case because that image that image man of saying man, he's not what he used to be. Man, he really struggled. Man, he really got showed up. We don't have that of Jordan. We don't have that of Jordan when he was at his best. That's why when people of previous generations tell you that Michael Jordan is the GOAT, they're saying it because they've never seen that man when he was at his when he was in his prime, when he was at his peak. They never saw the dude get beaten. That's why he's the best of them. And truth be told, I'm in 100% agreement with them. If you're at your peak, and you got all these Hall of Famers in the league, the, the 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 John Stocktons and the Carl Malones and the Reggie Millers and the Charles Barkleys, and you run through all of them, can't none of them take you down? Yeah, you're the GOAT. Hell yeah, you're the GOAT. That's why, man. And that's what this documentary, I just wanted to get that off my chest. That's what this documentary really spoke to me as. This is why people view Michael Jordan as the GOAT. That's what I extracted. The dude was unbeatable when he was at his best. You will not win until he quits. He goes out on his terms. That's why he's the GOAT. On this topic of GOATs, let's get into it. Bill Russell's overrated. What? That is blasphemous. Oh, did I say that out loud? Yeah, I said it out loud. I said it and I stand by it. I am sick and tired of seeing that dude's name not just in the same conversation with, but ahead of a LeBron, a Kobe, a Magic, a Shaq. I'm done. I don't want to see that any anymore. And we knew that the Last Dance documentary would bring about these conversations of who's the greatest of all time, who are the top five greatest of all time, who's the top 10, the top 50, the top 74, yada, yada. We knew all that would happen. I didn't expect this. I did not expect to see Bill Russell's name ahead of so many of these greats, and I frankly don't understand how you can even justify that. But Reagan... Reagan, he won so much. 11 rings. 11 rings. He won 11 rings. I know. I know. And you know, for this portion, I'm going to play the devil's advocate against myself. I know that Bill Russell won 11 rings. I know that Bill Russell was the centerpiece, let's call it for that dominant dynasty that we saw from the Celtics. I know that Bill Russell not only had an assortment of achievements on the court, but he was a trailblazer, a groundbreaker, somebody who broke through barriers off the court. He was an advocate for his race. 
Bill Russell has contributed so much to basketball and our society. This is but not by any means me trying to hate on Bill Russell or diminish his legacy. Bill Russell's undoubtedly a top 20 player of all time. Probably top 15. You know, I'll venture to say he's a, undoubtedly a top 15 player of all time. Because y'all know, I've said this before, your legacy is comprised of three different things. It's comprised of the accolades that you've accumulated, the impact that you had, and the talent that you displayed. When it comes to the accolades, Bill Russell got them all. 11 rings. 11 rings. He got the accolades. He has the impact both on and off the court. And those two things, he exceeds so many NBA players by a wide margin. That's why he's a top 15 player all time. And I won't dispute that. But when I'm looking at a list by Jason McIntyre, and I see this dude at number seven all time, ahead of Kobe, and ahead of Shaquille O'Neal, I'm taking issue with it. Because even with the impact and the accolades that the dude had, I'll say it, y'all, he wasn't that good. In the grand scheme of talented basketball players that we've seen walk through the NBA, he was not that talented, relatively speaking. He wasn't that talented. And that talent is the reason why I'm docking him behind a guy like Kobe and behind a guy like Shaq because although he won so much and he had that great impact, he's losing the battle when it comes to talent and he's losing it by a lot, y'all. He's losing it by a lot. Have you ever watched Bill Russell highlights? You ever just sat down and looked up on YouTube? B-I-L-L space R-U-S S-E-L-L. Highlights. They got him. You'll watch some, you know, black and white grainy footage of, you know, some people talking over about how Bill, how great Bill Russell was. But just watch the highlights. Tell me what you see. Because I'll tell you what I see is a guy that was good at a very, very specific role. He was the, the person that they put in the center of that defense to protect the rim and rebound the ball. And he did that damn well. He did that damn well. But when we talk about the talent that it takes to protect the rim and rebound the ball, there's a lot more things to basketball than just that. He was the defensive centerpiece for those Celtics teams that won 11 championships. But beyond that, he didn't score the ball that much. He didn't match up well with, with the greatest players of his era, specifically Wilt Chamberlain. I'll get into Wilt Chamberlain used to get on that dude's head. Get on that dude's head. Bill Russell was the greatest role player that we've ever seen on a basketball court, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's not me as a, as a Lakers fan talking. That's not me as a person that dislikes the Celtics talking. That's me as an objective observer of basketball telling this to you. 
There's a lot of great players that have come through the NBA. There's a lot of vastly, vastly talented players that have come through the NBA. Bill Russell, is he doesn't scratch the top 20. He doesn't scratch the top 30 in just pure basketball talent. But because of what he has in his legacy and his impact and his accolades, that's why he's in the top 15 of me. But we need to have an honest discussion about how talented Bill Russell was. We need to start having this dialogue. Charles Barkley, let's have a dialogue. Let's start it, man. Because truth be told, I'm looking at a bunch of layups when I'm watching. I'm watching them right now. I'm looking at Bill Russell. Rebound, layup. Rebound, layup. Block shot. And people like to say, oh, well, he was able to block shots in the direction of his teammates so they could start fast breaks. That's that's great. That's that's great. I, I'd be interested in knowing how many of their points came in the fast break. But the thing is that people who want to advocate for Bill Russell, all they want to do is talk about winning. And winning plays a very, very, very large role in what your legacy is, which is, again, why he's in the top 15 all time. But it's not the end all be all. You got to be talented as well. Let me tell you about a Twitter conversation that I had. I was arguing with this guy back and forth about how good Bill Russell was as a basketball talent. And this is how any discussion, anyone who who pushes back against the idea that Bill Russell was not a talented basketball player, this is how the discussion is going to go when you try to pose that argument that Bill Russell wasn't actually that talented of a basketball player. I said, if I see another list with Bill Russell ahead of Kobe and Shaq, dot, 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 implying that I was, you know, upset at the fact that Bill Russell was ahead of Kobe and Shaq, the guy says, then you'll see another correct list. Uh, uh, the guy is uh, my, my, a buddy of mine, just to be clear. I'm not going to throw his name out there. I don't know if he'd want me to or not, um, but you can probably go on my Twitter and find it anyway. Uh, then I say, name me one thing Bill Russell did at an all-time great level besides winning and rebounding. I'll wait. The guy says defense wins championships, so it makes sense that the greatest defender of all time would also have the most rings. Eh. Try again. The greatest defender of all time? Gary Payton, Tim Duncan, Jordan, Elijah Wan, Pippen, Rodman. As the game evolved and became more and more stretched out, those guys were the elite defenders. Bill Russell... As great of a rim protector as he was, played in a game where essentially guys would come running towards him. I mean, Will Chamberlain is one of the all-time great defenders. I'm holding him to the same standard. You know, it's a lot easier to be an all-time great defender at the rim when the entirety of the game exists essentially at the rim. Your stats become inflated. That's why people rebounded the ball so much more back then. I digress. Let's keep let's keep going in this conversation. The tape doesn't lie. He says, clearly, I haven't watched the tape because Bill Russell's shot blocking ability and defensive instincts will never be surpassed. If they'd never be surpassed, the, that, that's essentially telling me that you put Bill Russell in today's NBA, his rim protecting ability would be right there with Rudy Gobert if they've never been surpassed. Now, I'm not sure if, if that's the hill that you want to die on there. Because, as again, as good as Bill Russell was, he's been surpassed quite frequently in basketball history and when it, when it comes to rim protection ability because the evolution of the game makes it that way. 
Bill Russell was a trailblazer for how rim protection is done in today's NBA. But because you're the first does not mean that you're the best. Tim Hardaway was the first person to have the crossover. Allen Iverson perfected the crossover. Kyrie Irving has built upon these things. They evolve over time. They evolve over time. Just keep going. I say it's incredible for that all of Bill Russell's all-time great defensive abilities, Walt Chamberlain averaged 30 on his head over the course of their careers. He was the generational talent. I'll get into Wilt in, in a second. He says, well, that's less impressive when you learn that Wilt averaged 30 shots per game in those games. And hurt had that in that Russell won 20 more head-to-head matchups. Bingo, there it is. Bill Russell won 20 more head-to-head matchups. When people advocate for Bill Russell, they just end up talking themselves in circles till they end up going back to the fact that he won so much. And he did win a lot. But that winning was a lot more than just Bill Russell. That was Bill Russell and seven Hall of Famers. That was Bill Russell in an era where player mobility was essentially non-existent. So once they had accumulated that many much consolidated talent, it was there for the long haul. That was Bill Russell, who really wasn't all that great of an offensive scorer, being reliant upon his teammates to score the points while he held down the defensive end. Which is, again, admirable. Bill Russell was a great defender for his time. But let's not sit up here and act like he was this generational talent. The generational talent of that era was Wilt Chamberlain. I said, go back and watch Bill Russell highlights and tell me what he did. Now go watch Wilt Chamberlain highlights and tell me what you see. You see a guy that was jumping higher than everyone. Even the guards. He had a, he had a, a reported 48-inch vertical. Wilt Chamberlain could put a quarter on top of the backboard. Imagine that. A quarter on top of the backboard. He could have been an Olympic sprinter. He was that fast. His time rivaled though that of Olympic sprinters. His strength. He was, you know, apparently lifting players up in scuffles with one hand. He was a generational athlete. Wilt Chamberlain, that was the generational talent. Bill Russell happened to end up on the generational team. That's where the separator is. Because Bill Russell ended up on his team and he played very well in his role, people have conflated that into believing that Bill Russell is a generational talent. He wasn't. This guy told me to go watch the tape. I've watched the tape. Nothing about it screams generational talent. Wilt was the generational talent. Again, I cannot stress this enough. Bill Russell is a top 15 player of all time because you got to have impact. You got to have accolades and you got to have talent. And he is so, so strong in impact and accolades. Not that strong in talent, man. That's a hill I'm going to die on from a purely basketball talent perspective. Bill Russell has become the most overrated player in NBA history. I want to hear y'all's thoughts on it, but before you give me your thoughts, because I want you guys to come at me in the, in the comments or whatever. I want you guys to come at me on my social media. Before you do that, please just go watch Bill Russell highlights real quick. 
And think about that in the context of what you've seen from basketball players throughout the course of NBA history. And tell me, what is he doing that's generational? For his generation, maybe. But even then, he was clearly surpassed by somebody else in terms of generational ability, ability, and that was Wilt Chamberlain. That's a discussion I'll have you know, all day. I, I could talk about that all day long, but I won't bore you guys with too much more of that. Let's keep it pushing. I want to talk about this, uh, these proposed Rooney Rule changes in the NFL. For those of you who don't know what the Rooney Rule is, it, it's a rule that was put in place in the name of a former owner. This owner, this owner Art Rooney, the guy, he put a very strong emphasis on getting more minority talent in the NFL and in the front office and coaching positions, not just on the field. Uh, that the rule was named in his in his name, and essentially what the rule says up to this point, it said every head coaching position that becomes available in the NFL. The team has to interview at least one minority candidate for that position. Now, it's it's helped historically, but we, we've come to a point in the NFL that it's clearly not doing what it's intended to do because we're looking at, what, three black head coaches, four minority coaches in total in the NFL. Uh, yeah, so, so. There's been a lot of noise around the idea of changing the rule or adjusting the rule. There's this thing that came out that was uh, it got a lot of buzz on Twitter this week because they wanted to say, okay, clearly just interviewing somebody isn't getting the job done. The NFL said maybe we should incentivize the hiring of black people to these positions. So what they were doing is if you hire a black person to an executive position, like a general manager position, you'd get a boost in your third round draft pick. If you hired a black person to a coaching position, you'd get a boost in your third round draft pick. If you kept them for a certain period of time in that position, you get another boost. That that was what the they were trying to incentivize the hiring and retaining of black people at these positions. Didn't go over well on Twitter and in the sports world in general. A lot of people saw it as pandering. They saw it as belittling. Um, people said essentially, okay, so you, you need some sort of incentive to do the right thing. And, and I'm not going to lie, man. When, when it first came out, I wasn't the biggest fan of it because it did feel a little bit pandering and condescending and belittling. But I wasn't sure what the alternative would be. I'm sitting here observing clearly, okay, interviewing people isn't going to be enough. And I'm an Eagles fan. And as much as I love Doug Peterson, I'm going to go off on a tangent here. As much as I love Doug Peterson, I'll never forget that offseason that we hired him from the offensive coordinator position with the Kansas City Chiefs. Because of the Rooney rule, they brought in the Eagles running back coach, Deuce Staley to interview for the head coaching job. And this was right when I was really starting to sink my teeth into the NFL. And as an Eagles fan, I was sitting here like, why are they bringing in the, the Eagles running back head coach to interview for the head coaching job? He's not qualified. That's what's wrong with the running rule. They were just fulfilling the requirement. They knew they had to interview a black guy, so they grabbed the closest black guy and said, okay, do you want to be the head coach of the, the Philadelphia Eagles? Deuce Staley's like, sure. And they're like, okay, cool. Let's get this process actually started. That's what's wrong with the Rooney rule. So they tried to incentivize it. Like I said, I wasn't a big fan, but I wasn't sure what the alternative would be. 
you know, if you if you give people reasons to do these things, although they won't be doing this out of the kindness of their hearts, I'm really lose. I've lost faith in the NFL and doing anything out of the kindness of its heart. That's just not how the NFL operates. The NFL is not going to do research on CTE out of the kindness of its heart. It's not going to, you know, hire minority head coaches out of the kindness of its heart. It's not going to donate money to call to community causes out of the t- kindness of its heart. That's not what the NFL does. It's greedy. It's stingy. It's racist. The NFL is a lot of things, but it doesn't do anything out of the kindness of its heart. That much has been made clear. But I had a long discussion with my parents about it. And we talked about a lot of things. We talked about racial bias and, and their experiences with their jobs. We talked about incentivizing progress and what that could mean to, to belittling the people that are parts of progress, um, the dynamics of white male power structures, all, all that sorts of stuff. We, we talked about all of that. And my mom, always being the idealist she is, she says, you know, there has to be a way to get people to do the right thing. There has to be a way other than, you know, just incentivizing things because, you know, the incentives might not even be enough. And to the truth be told, they probably wouldn't have been. And since then, uh, mind you, that the NFL is kind of actually today, actually, they struck it down. They put all this stuff on the table because they saw the reaction to it. They were like, oh, maybe we shouldn't go through with this. So they put it on the table. It's going to be up for further discussion. But my mom says there has to be a way to get people to do the right thing. My dad responds. The only way to get people to do the right thing is by holding them accountable for doing the wrong thing. Think about that. Let me let me say it again. The only way to get people to do the right thing is by holding them accountable for doing the wrong thing. And I always respect my father as a leader. He's probably the greatest leader that I know. And that right there, that, that statement spoke volumes to me. And it made me think, how do you, as the NFL, hold each of your franchises accountable for doing what's clearly the wrong thing? So I thought about it and I, I've come up with what I believe could be a possible solution. And it's clear that the, the, the thing that they're putting on the table right now with the, the draft incentives, that's not the right thing. Um, but, you know, my dad always says, you know, don't come to me with problems, come to me with solutions. So I've come up with my own plan of what I think the NFL needs to do to hold people accountable for doing the wrong thing. I'm going to call it the Reagan rules. NFL, I hope you're listening. I really, really hope you're listening because I'm not going to toot my own horn. I mean, y'all know I like to toot my own horn a little bit. A toot toot. But I really, really like this rule. I, I really like this. I think this system could work. Here's my proposal, man. Here's the Reagan rules. The NFL would need to establish what I'll I'll call the Bureau of Diversity and Inclusion. And and that committee's role is to oversee the involvement of minority and underserved communities within the NFL. Its primary role will be to monitor talent acquisition among each of the NFL franchises. Talent acquisition essentially being the hiring and firing of people. It's going to delegate 32 people, one for each franchise, that's hired and paid. I can't emphasize this enough. This is the the key to why this. I think this would work. 
This person's hired and paid by the Bureau, working for the NFL, not for the franchise, but for the NFL. And they go to each team, they're one for each team. This person sits down on the entire hiring process. They have a meeting with the general manager, with the, the owner, all the people who are going to be involved in the decision-making process and they, the beforehand, and they say, what is it that you're looking for? What is it that you want to see from these candidates? This person's also going to sit in on the interviews. They'll be able to have a gauge on you know, whether the person met the criteria. How well did they speak during the interview? Did they come with a plan? All the things that people want to see in interviews. And once a decision has been made, it's going to be this person's job to verify the justifications for that for that decision. It's going to be this person's job to determine whether or not the team is giving minority candidates a fair opportunity. Because they know the criteria that the team was looking for. And they know what each of the candidates had to offer. They were able to. This is an objective party sitting in observing the hiring process. To be clear, the teams are still going to have complete autonomy in my proposed plans. They get to hire whoever they want. There's just going to be that little angel on their shoulder. That's like, okay, why are you making that decision? What led you to that decision? But the the important thing is you have to have someone asking the question, why? That three-letter word, y'all, that three-letter word, you ask that question enough, you'll get to the bottom and the root of a lot of issues. If you ask that why question enough, you get to the root of a lot of issues, man, a lot of issues. Too often in this process, man, you got dudes that are hired to be head coaches because the guys had a they had a gut feeling. They had a hunch. They just had, you know, some sort of vibe with the person that they felt like, oh, this guy's going to be a really, really good head coach. That's not a real justification for hiring someone. That you had a hunch. You had a gut feeling. I need concrete reasons why these guys are not getting hired. That's what these people would be doing. Because black guys, I'll tell you this right now. Black guys are not, no one has the hunch about Eric B. Enemy, apparently. Even though Doug Peterson came from the same position and went and won a Super Bowl. Matt Nagy came from the same position as Eric B. Enemy, went to Chicago. Both of them had coaches. Now Eric B. Enemy, offensive coordinator for the Chiefs. The Chiefs offense is as good as it's ever been. No one has a hunch about Eric B. Enemy. So it, there's got to be people asking these questions. Why? Prime example. What did the Giants do this offseason? They hired Joe Judge, former special teams coordinator for the New England Patriots. You got to be able to justify that decision when you had Eric B. Enemy in your building. You got to be able to justify hiring a guy like Joe Judge with more than just he had a certain poise. This is a quote. This is a literal quote from the people that hired Joe Judge. He just had a certain poise. He had this confidence. Really? Really? 
We're hiring people. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me how everywhere else in the hiring process, it's always, always this, you know, we got to have your qualify. Any, you, me, listening to this, to this, um, this podcast, you, if you went into a job interview, no one's going to have a hunch about you. No one's going to have a hunch about me. Not unless we already meet the requirements of the job. If the job requires that you have a bachelor's degree in something, if you have a high school diploma, it doesn't matter whether anyone has a hunch about you. That's essentially what's happening here. Eric Bieniemy has a master's in football. Joe Judge has a GED in football. And this isn't to discount Joe Judge. Because Joe Judge coached under Saban and Bill Belichick. But clearly, one has proven himself more than the other. Bienemy has a Super Bowl as an offensive coordinator. The leader of uh, probably the most prolific offense we've ever seen. But Joe Judge gets the nudge because somebody has a hunch. Somebody has to ask that why question. Give me concrete justifications for why Joe Judge is getting this job over Eric Bieniemy. That's what the Reagan rules. That's what I'm proposing they do. Somebody's in the room asking that question, why? Asking that question, why? Same would go for when somebody gets fired. A couple years back before Cliff Kingsbury went to Arizona, they had a coach, Steve Wilkes. Only had him there for a year. Of course, Steve Wilkes is a black guy. I need to make that much clear. Only there for a year before they said, oh, we we actually don't like this guy. We're going to go for Cliff Kingsbury. Remake the offense. We're going to get Kyler Murray in. See how it goes. Why? Somebody's got to ask that question. Why? And were you ever really going to give Steve Wilkes an opportunity? Or was he just your placeholder? Because that's. Really what it looks like from the outside looking in is that the dude was just a placeholder until a better option came through. You never see that anywhere else. Clearly, there is an issue with black coaches and executives in the NFL. Somebody has to ask that question, why, y'all? And if the teams don't have a sufficient answer, they don't have a justification for why, just keeping tabs. Hold these people accountable. What did my dad say? People are not going to do the right thing unless somebody is holding them accountable for doing the wrong thing. Hold these teams accountable for not doing the right thing with these coaching hires. Take draft picks. Find them. Salary cap considerations. Do something to hold these people accountable for not giving everyone a fair opportunity. Because if you're going to look at me in the eye... And tell me that you honestly believe that every black coach out there is getting the same opportunity as any other coach. You're either blind or stupid. Blind or stupid. And when I say blind, I mean blind to the clear injustices that's going on in the NFL right now. Blind or stupid. In a league where... In a league where three-fourths of the players are minorities, three-fourths, 75%, 75% of the players are minorities, it makes zero sense that 28 out of 32 of those head coaches are white. 30 out of 32 
general managers are white. You can count. You barely need your second hand. Excuse me. You don't even need your second hand. You can use one hand to count the amount of black head coaches and GMs in the entire league. Grand total of five. Ron Rivera being a Hispanic American head coach. So you need a hand and one finger to count the amount of minority head coaches and general managers in the entire NFL when 75% of the players are minorities. What sense does that make? What is What message are you sending across if you're the NFL? You're saying, these guys can play the game, but when it comes to making the big decisions, nope. Got to bring in the white dudes. Bringing in the white dudes. And that's that long-standing American tradition of black people doing the grunt work and white people supervising. All the way since this country's founding, it's been a whole lot of that. And in 2020, it cannot go on like that. It absolutely cannot go on like that, y'all. Guys like Eric Bieniemy, Ray Agnew, Robert Sala, Joey Clickscales, Leslie Frazier, Jimmy Ray, Byron Leftwich, Will McClay, Chris Richard, Martin Mayhew, they have paid their dues, man. Paid their dues. They've proven themselves. They've earned the right to opportunities. These NFL teams are clearly not willing to give it to them. So it's time that they are held accountable for doing the wrong thing. That's my two cents, man. Let's move on to this Q&A. question this week comes from always coming with the questions William Patterson friend of the show he asked a question on the topic of great documentaries referencing the last dance documentary that I talked about earlier on the topic of great documentaries what is another one of your favorites and why now if you guys haven't seen the Carter effect it's on Netflix go watch it it's not, I wouldn't say that's my second favorite documentary, but I think it's a very, very, another, I, I talked about context in relation to the, the Last Dance documentary. That's another documentary that does a great job in terms of contextualizing the legacy of a player. I never knew how much of an impact Vince Carter had on Canadian basketball until I watched The Carter Effect. Canadian basketball isn't what it is. When we see all these great players come out of Canada, right? Trey Lyles, uh, Jamal Murray, Andrew Wiggins. These guys, they didn't look up to, to Kobe and Jordan growing up. They looked up to Vince Carter. That's who they wanted to be. The Toronto Raptors might literally not even be in Canada right now. Might not even be in Toronto if it wasn't for Vince Carter. Not just being a great player. But being a captivating player, his high-flying acrobatics being something that that captured the hearts and minds, the souls of the people that watched him play. He was such a captivating player to watch. 
he solidified that Raptors that 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 stronghold that the Raptors currently have on Toronto. You see these fans watching every single game outside of the stadium in the freezing, blistering cold. The reason why that fan base is as strong and loyal as it is, that goes back to Vince Carter. The Carter effect, go watch it on Netflix. Very, very good. Very great contextualization of the greatness of Vince Carter and his effect on Canadian basketball, man. I love the Carter effect. Next one comes from a guy whose name I butchered last week, but I got it now. He, he's since corrected me. Jamin McKinney. Jeez, I butchered that last week. I was talking about Geeman. It's Jamin McKinney, y'all. Like I said, juice alert. Go peep that. He does a very good job. Now, he has one of two questions, but I'm going to answer the one that I find to be actually funny. And this might be the first, like, eh, not the first, but one of the more riveting non-sports related questions that we've gotten on the show. Who would I date, Beyonce or Rihanna? Mm. Mm. Beyonce or Rihanna? Can I say both? Can I say both? No. Gotta make a decision, Reagan. Beyonce or Rihanna? I gotta say, I love... I have a soft spot for Beyonce. I do. I do. But I would be fearful that there would be another album coming out the second I slipped up. I'm gonna have to go with Rihanna, y'all. I'm going to have to go with Rihanna. Beyonce is going to tear me apart if I screw up. I'm going to be walking on eggshells around Beyonce. I can't do it. My heart can't take it. I'm going with Rihanna. Great question, Jamin. That last question this week comes from Eddie Sun, the roommate, the podcast mate, the man, the myth, the legend himself, Eddie Sun. He asked me, am I more mesmerized by elite athleticism or craft? Now we've kind of had this discussion before, Eddie. So I'm going to contextualize it for every. Ooh, that's the that's the word. Ding 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 ding. That is the word of the day. The word of this podcast is contextualization. Remember it. I'm going to contextualize this conversation for everyone else that hasn't been a part of these discussions before. Me and Eddie have had a lot of talks about what what's um what's more captivating. In terms of basketball, watching someone be able to manipulate their way into scoring a basket or, or setting up a teammate with craftiness or watching, you know, Zion Williamson-esque insane athleticism. Think about the 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 differences between like a Sean Kemp and a Steve Nash. Steve Nash is more aligned with craftiness, you know, not, not having this insane athleticism, but he's able to maneuver and manipulate the court. Or is it the insane athleticism just being so much more physically gifted than everyone around you? And he's asking me, am I more mesmerized by athleticism or craft? Now, when you use I, I'm, I'm, the word mesmerized, because if you would ask me which one I enjoy watching more, it's probably going to be the elite athleticism. But when you use that word mesmerized, I kind of think in more of a hip, hypnotic sense, right? When I think of mesmerized, I mean like something put me into a trance. And when we talk about like a trance and hypnosis, I think that's more aligned to the craftiness because then it's like, whoa, how is he doing that? And you're really like looking into the screen and you're captivated by what you're seeing. And you're really, you're really uh, mesmerized is the word that you used. 
when you talk about mesmerized, I, I think I'm a little bit more mesmerized by craft. But when it comes to at least elite athleticism, I think I'm more impressed by that because as and I believe me, I have a um, there's a place in my heart for craft as well. And I think the reason why John Moran is my favorite NBA player right now is because he's kind of the, the, the middle of both. He has this craft about him, but he's able to use his athleticism to kind of uh, to inflate that craft. But am I more captivated by elite athleticism or or craft? I'm going to have to say the athleticism, man. There, there's something about watching people do extraordinary things physically that you just can't even begin to fathom. That's just wild to me. When, when, I, when I think about a guy like Zion Williamson, putting his head above the rim with ease. And then you go step on a basketball court and you see how high that 10 foot rim is like, how does he possibly do that? Just the thing about the, the physical extent to which the human body can operate. That's what really, that, that, that's what really captivates me as a fan is watching physical feats more so than, than, and like I said, the, the mental feats can be just as impressive, but personally, it's the it's the physical man, the physical stuff, the, the the guys who run the fastest, who jump the highest, who are the strongest. That stuff is so, so much more impressive to me. Not much more impressive, but more captivating. So to answer your question, when you use the word mesmerized, I'll say the craft. But in general, which one does do I enjoy watching more? It's the athleticism. So with that said, that'll do it for this episode of the Reagan Griffin Jr. Show. Thank you guys all so much for tuning in. Like I said at the beginning, don't forget to go peep those social medias at the RG2 show on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you do feel so inclined, I dropped behind. I, I was sitting at 1150 followers when I woke up this morning. I am now at 1149. Very, very distasteful thing. So if you want to go help me out in that ring, by all means, I would be very much glad to have you as part of my loyal, my loyal army of followers, let's call it. But, you know, that's uh, I, that, all the social media stuff. That's all here and there. That's not all that important. The important thing is this, that you guys are listening to this because this is what really means so, so much to me. I say this to you guys every week and I'm not going to stop saying it. Thank you so much for tuning in. The fact that you listen to me talk for this long about all of this, these random assortments and stuff, it means the world to me. Very, very much appreciate you guys for tuning in. Thank you to everyone that's part of Square Media. Make sure you go check out the other stuff, the Hoop and Holler, the uh, the On the Clock, even though On the Clock kind of hasn't been. We're, we're planning on doing On the Clock stuff with the NBA draft as well. We started it with the NFL draft. The NFL draft has since came and went. We're thinking about doing it with the NBA draft, so keep updated with that sort of stuff in the for the sake of keeping this under an hour i'm gonna shut up now so thank you guys for tuning in i will see you next week Silky B. Silky B.